Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. The masks are off on planes, trains, buses, and other forms of transportation across America, but the Department of Justice has already appealed the ruling from a Florida judge that struck down President Biden's federal mask mandate earlier this week. What's at stake if the appeal succeeds, and what's at stake if it fails? Plus, the streaming wars heat up with a less-than-stellar showing from Netflix, and house prices across the U.S. continue to surge, leading some to wonder if we're in a bubble and if it will ever burst. Joining us for the roundup is Anita Kumar. She's the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Jen. Also with us, Abby Phillip, CNN's senior political correspondent. She's also the anchor for Inside Politics Sunday. Abby, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. And Shane Harris is with us. He's a national security reporter with The Washington Post. Shane, always a pleasure. Thanks, Jen. Okay, let's start with the national mask mandate that was struck down this week. On Monday, a federal judge in Florida ruled against the mandate requiring travelers to mask up on airplanes and other forms of public transportation. Judge Catherine Mizell says the CDC overstepped its authority and did not follow proper rulemaking protocol. Airlines and transportation centers have now dropped their mask mandates, but health experts are concerned about the impact of traveling maskless. Here's White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Ashish Jha talking with NBC's Lester Holt on Thursday. Obviously, it's true that airplanes do have good filtration and, and, and ventilation. Uh, there are a couple of things. First, transportation is different. Remember, you're mixing people from all over the country, all over the world, people sitting next to each other. So if you have spread of infections on, on transportation, uh, you can get that spread happening nationally very quickly. The second issue with transportation, of course, is you sit down next to somebody. If they're coughing, if they're sneezing, you can't get up and move. You do not have the ability to to distance yourself from that situation. So because of those factors, Lester, we've always had a bit of a different bar for transportation. And that's what the CDC scientists were influenced by when they made their recommendation. Shane, what else are we hearing from health experts right now? Well, it's interesting that the administration was considering letting the uh, mask mandate expire maybe in the beginning of May because the cases are kind of, well, cases are up with the new Omicron variant, but hospitalization rates are stable. So there is some concern that we're lifting the mandate in this window where it's not entirely clear that it's really safe to do it. So that's one concern. Health experts, I think, are also concerned about the precedent that this ruling could set. If the administration appeals this unsuccessfully, and they have said they're going to appeal, it could limit the rulemaking authority of the CDC and other public health agencies in the future. So I think there's the immediate public health concern and then the long-term concern about what this could do to constrain rulemaking and other authorities that the government has uh, in a future pandemic or in a flare-up of uh, of coronavirus. Now, Abby, what do we know about Judge Catherine Mizell, the the federal judge who struck down the mask mandate? Well, she is a relatively young and relatively new uh, federal judge. She was appointed by uh, former President Trump. And her critics say that she was rated 
not qualified by the American Bar Association, something that is actually not particularly unusual for Trump era judges. Uh, more of his judges were uh, received those types of ratings from the American Bar Association than that of his predecessors or even his successor, President Biden. Um, and so I think a lot of people are looking at this and they're saying this is a sort of ideologically kind of driven decision. And uh, the other factor in all of this is that this is not the first federal court that has ruled on the mask mandate. It had been previously upheld by other judges. And so this particular ruling is something of an anomaly in this situation, uh, but it comes at a odd time for the administration. The mask mandate was set to expire in just a few days. And so uh, in some ways, this legal fight, as Shane uh, explained, is, is really about the future. It's about the precedent. There's an acknowledgement that um, this mask mandate was going to go away anyway, in part because the uh, federal regulators recognized that there were going to be limits to how much longer they could extend it, given that the public had largely moved on from mask mandates and a lot of other spheres of life, and also because of the changing nature of the virus, the, the availability of vaccines, and so on and so forth. We should mention here, these are daily averages from the CDC. There are 42,000 cases, and that's on the rise from March, 375 deaths per day, which is on the decline, and 1,500 hospitalizations per day, which is a slight raise. Anita, the Justice Department has said it will appeal the ruling, as, as we've mentioned, at the CDC's request. A DOJ spokesperson, Anthony Coley, tweeted that requiring masks, quote, remains necessary to protect the public health. So where does the appeal go from here? So it goes to a U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the 11th Circuit, which is Florida, Georgia, Alabama. This was a, a judge who is in Florida. Um, a majority of those judges were appointed by former President Trump, so we don't really know sort of how that's going to look, but there are some people sort of speculating that, you know, they might they might agree with her. You know, of course, this this could go all the way, depending uh, depending on how it shakes out, could go all the way to the Supreme Court. And as we know, and we have seen in recent months, that there have been certain things that the Supreme Court has not agreed with the Biden administration on regarding the coronavirus. If you'll remember, there was that... Uh, you know, the White House's really signature uh, move before about the vaccine vaccination or testing requirement for those large employers. And remember, they struck that down. Um, so we don't really know what this is going to look like. It, it, the Department of Justice and the administration spent sort of a couple days trying to figure out what that message would be to the public. And, and we saw sort of people being confused by that and, and the White House sort of being blindsided by this and not really sure what they needed to say. So the appeal came a couple days later or the announcement of the appeal came a couple days later, and it's sort of left a lot of people wondering, you know, what does this mean? Where does it go? You saw lots of places immediately say, okay, you don't have to wear masks now. And so we have the patchwork uh, across the country that we've seen, you know, really for the last two years on whether you have to wear masks or not. Well, that includes rideshare companies that quickly rolled back their mask requirements for drivers and passengers. Reporters asked President Biden to react to the federal ruling on Tuesday during his trip to the New Hampshire Port Authority. Mr. President, should people continue to wear masks on planes? That's up to them. 
So while the mask mandate has been lifted at major transportation hubs, some colleges are taking the opposite approach. Institutions around the country have reinstated their indoor mask mandates, including the University of Pennsylvania, the University of Rochester, and American University. And in the interest of full disclosure, American University owns WAMU. That's the station that produces 1A. So, Abby, as of April 20th, the daily average of new cases nationwide is more than 42,000. That's according to the CDC's case tracker. But the CDC also says 11% of surveyed Americans reported using an at-home COVID test during the Omicron surge, but many who test positive at home never report the results. So really, how accurate of a picture do we have about how this virus is circulating around the U.S. right now? Not very. I mean, we don't have, I think case numbers in particular are not as informative as they used to be for a number of reasons, not just because of the at-home tests, which are much more available now and much more widely utilized, but also because, um, you know, the, the, the way that case numbers used to correlate with things like hospitalizations and deaths is kind of shifting, uh, in part because vaccines are so much more widely available. So people who might test positive for COVID-19, some of them are having very mild symptoms. Uh, We saw this very vividly here in Washington uh, at a at a very large dinner, dozens and dozens of people, including very prominent people, contracted the virus. And as far as we know, Almost none of them were seriously ill, um, and I think it's it's emblematic of how this virus is changing. There are other methods, though. Uh, they've started to look at wastewater, which gives you a good, accurate picture, a pretty accurate picture of the rising and falling levels in a community, but it's not an individual-by-individual individual level of, of analysis. And so things are changing in terms of test of, of um, how the testing is reflecting what's going on with the virus. And I was interested just a, a couple of days ago, an infectious disease expert, Michael Ulsterholm, made an, an interesting point, which is that people, uh, the way that people are contracting the virus is also changing, uh, that we have to now question whether they are, in fact, contracting it in large congregate spaces or whether they're contracting it more in private interactions with people within their homes, within small dinner parties, um, in smaller environments, and how that affects how uh, public health experts recommend mitigation tactics, including masking in public spaces. And for universities, that's a complicated decision because, of course, students and and faculty members, they live where they go to school and where they work as well. Well, and Shane, very briefly, we we have to acknowledge the fact that a vaccine is not available for kids five and under. And for people who are immunocompromised, they're still at high risk. That's right. And we've already seen that children who are unvaccinated do get sick uh, and they have problems with the virus as well, immunocompromised as well. They'll be worried about the mask mandate lifting when they travel, I'm sure. We're rounding up the week's top stories. And remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. 
We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's stick with COVID for just a moment. As the BA2 subvariant drives new cases, we're learning more about who was hit hardest this winter. According to a new CDC study, it's unvaccinated children. Anita, this report shows that 87% of the children hospitalized between December 19th and February 28th were unvaccinated. What else does this study tell us about the toll of the Omicron variant during those winter months? Yeah, I mean, that that statistic shouldn't be terribly surprising to anyone, considering that's sort of what we've seen, right? The unvaccinated are more likely to have severe, um, uh, you know, repercussions from getting COVID. You know, it showed us that a, uh, a third of the children had no underlying medical conditions, yet they were still hospitalized. Um, and that they, you know, the unvaccinated that ages 5 to 11 were hospitalized at twice the rate of uh of vaccinated children. But it also showed us that it something that also shouldn't be surprising, that black children accounted for about a third of unvaccinated children in the study. And it was the largest of any, any racial group. We don't have all the figures and all the information here, but it does seem to be that uh, you know, what we have long thought for the last couple of years, that there are l- racial disparities here with COVID um, in, in, and the vaccine. We we know that among U.S. residents, Black people remain less likely than white people to be vaccinated. And so that perhaps is showing as well for children and that we have to do more um, in this country to make those numbers um, more equal. Well, we got this tweet from Aaron who says, wastewater monitoring shows the level of COVID in a community better because it detects asymptomatic cases too. And we did talk about the use of wastewater monitoring in our latest vaccination nation. Again, you can find that conversation on our website, the1a.org. Well, another public health policy that's up in the air is Title 42. It restricts the legal right to asylum in the U.S. because of the pandemic. The policy has been in place since the Trump administration, but it's based on a health statute that's been around for a lot longer. It's supposed to end on May 23rd, but the White House is facing pressure from lawmakers to reconsider. Now, Shane, Title 42 allows the U.S. to turn back migrants and asylum seekers due to COVID-19 health concerns. What's expected to happen once it's repealed? Well, and it's important to remember this is a public health measure. It's not an immigration tool, which has been another part of the thing that makes this a bit of a tricky situation. The pressure coming to repeal this is, I think, from those who believe, particularly immigration activists, that it was applied unfairly. And it, that's, it, it's preventing people from seeking asylum in the United States, which is a legally protected right. Uh, uh, we've seen a lot of asylum seekers coming, particularly from Central America, where they're fleeing violence uh, and they feel that they can't keep themselves and their families safe from uh, drug dealers and and drug drug lords. Um, If it stays in place, however, I think it's going to be seen as the White House, and this is where they want to buy time, trying to placate some more moderate Republicans and also avoid being labeled by by, by moderate Democrats and avoid being labeled by Republicans as soft on border control. Now, all of these issues get mixed up. And and, and I think that, you know, arguably uh, uh, there are surges in migration that are accountable for more things than just immigration policy. There are actual factors in play that are forcing people to come up more or compelling them to come more. But you see that this administration heading into the midterms does not want to give Republicans an opportunity to say that they are soft on border control and weak on border security, hence why the Biden administration is considering delaying this repeal of Title 42. Well, at the same time, Abby, some immigration advocates say this policy undermines trust in the administration. How are you seeing the politics play out? Advocates have been 
pretty upset with the Biden administration when it comes to immigration for quite some time. And at, at the core of a lot of it is Title 42, which has just been a blanket reason to um, turn migrants back. Uh, you know, um, the, the advocacy community also is faulting the Biden administration for not doing enough to stand up a workable immigration and asylum system in the interim, uh, including in the transition period between the time that, uh, you know, President Biden won election and when he took office. Uh, they were faced with the surge early on um, and had a really difficult time dealing with it because they they did not put in place a, a means to process migrants or a method to do that in a way that was effective. And now they're, I think they're facing the same thing. One of the interesting things is that the moderates, uh, including in, in states like Arizona and all the way up to New Hampshire, like Maggie Hassan, moderates who are running for re-election are not necessarily saying we want to keep Title 42 in place uh, because we believe that, that it should be used to turn migrants back. But they're saying the Biden administration hasn't put in place a system to deal with the influx that would result from it. So I think the pressure still falls on the Biden administration to stand up a workable immigration system. They have not been able to do that for a lot of complicated reasons, but also partly because there's not a whole lot of political will within the White House to do so. Uh, this is an issue that is a little bit of a hot potato uh, politically for the White House. They don't really want to deal with it head on. And of course, they have a lot of other concerns, both domestic and international inflation, the war in Ukraine, and all of those other things that are occupying a lot of time and energy. Well, Anita, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will testify about Title 42 in front of the House Judiciary Committee next week. What are you expecting from his testimony? Yeah, I'm sure that's going to be pretty lively. I mean, this this administration, this president is sort of learning what previous presidents have have learned in the modern era, which is there's just really no winning on immigration. You just can't um, appease everyone, right? And so he's seeing that his party and his his administration is really split on this issue. You know, President Biden campaigned uh, before he was president. When he was campaigning, he said he was going to immediately. Uh, you know, turn, reverse all President Trump's immigrations po immigration policies. And that included, uh, you know, talking about the border, but it included a wide variety of other immigration policies. And what his staff has found since they've been in office is that it's just not as quick and easy as they once believed. You know, that it's just very difficult to do it for a lot of different reasons. You know, policy reasons that, that Congress isn't going to act on immigration, isn't likely to act, that a lot of things are tied up in court. So I think that, you know, the secretary is going to, you know, face a lot of questions about what's going to happen when this ends. Um, if there is talk about it not ending, um, you know, there was reporting this week that um, he had privately told members of Congress that he was concerned uh, with lifting this and, and what would happen. So he's going to be you know, front and center there, and members of Congress are going to be asking him what the plan is and how are they going to deal with what is expected to be a summer surge of of, of people trying to cross the border. Well, Shane, in, in the absence of a, a workable plan, what what does that mean for what's happening at the border for people who are waiting to seek asylum? It, 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 under Title 42, they can be expelled, and there's been 1.7 million expulsions under that title. So if you are coming here and seeking asylum, you can be turned back. 
um, people try to re-enter and they, they can't do that and try to reapply for asylum. But for those people who are who are genuinely seeking asylum in the United States and coming here because they're fearful for their lives and their safety, this this rule has really been an impediment to that. And so they find themselves, I think, in a kind of uncertainty, a kind of limbo, which so many migrants, you know, have faced. And, and to be clear, you know, the, Demo- the Democrats in the administration are not saying that there are not people who are coming across the border illegally. They're not saying that there isn't drug smuggling and crime. Those things happen, but there are people who are trying to get across the border and follow a legal process. And we should emphasize the seeking of asylum is a right under U.S. law for people crossing the border. That's the law. They're allowed to try to seek it. We got this tweet from Jeremy who says, no, Title 42 should not be allowed to go away until the pandemic is over, full stop. That doesn't excuse Congress from not acting. Since the 90s, immigration has been a major issue nobody wants to fix. I mean, Abby, what is the path forward here? Because as you said, the Biden administration is facing some complicated issues. There's also the question of political will. We've got midterms just ahead. I mean, what's the path forward? On Title 42, it seems likely that it will expire. Um, In in fact, there was a kind of funny situation uh, just yesterday where President Biden sort of mixed up the issue of the mask mandate in Title 42 and seemed to suggest that the Justice Department would be looking at Title 42 and the White House then had to turn around and correct it and say that, no, the Justice Department is not looking into ways to, to... keep it in place longer. And so it seems very likely that it will expire. It's a question now of how effectively can the administration um, administer the process at the border? Can they process these people quickly enough that they don't create massive backlogs, that they don't create situations in which you have large numbers of, for example, unaccompanied children who then have to be housed and kept um, in facilities until they are transferred to, uh, you know, sponsors and other organizations while they are awaiting their immigration proceedings. Those are the types of situations an imagery that can become very politically problematic for this administration. And from a from a from an actual practical perspective, what can Congress or Washington do to actually solve this problem? They are not going to do anything on immigration in this year because we are so close to an election cycle. And the Republican Party has made it very clear running on this issue of the border is at the heart of their 2022 message. And so it's it's up to the Biden administration now to manage their way through this. I don't think there are going to be a lot of legal remedies, and there are certainly not going to be any legislative ones. Well, Katie tweeted this question. We were told Vice President Harris was tasked with immigration. Where is she? Anita, briefly, have we heard from Harris on this issue? Well, the vice president, the White House was quick to say when when President Biden gave her this task that she was dealing not with the border itself and people crossing the border and but the root causes of of the of immigration. So, why are people trying to come to the United States from these other countries in Central or South America? You know, what is that about? What can be done? So, you know, she's taken a trip. She has, uh, you know, worked on the administration's message to these other countries. She's talked to uh, to other leaders. Talked about, uh, you know. Financing certain, uh, you know, putting resources in other countries to prevent people from trying to come to make things better 
in those other places. So it's a little bit of a difference. You know, Republicans say, oh, look, that's splitting hairs. She she is responsible for immigration. The White House has just made it really clear uh, and pushed back against people who were talking about Title 42 as a immigration uh, policy and, you know, made sure to say it was about the, the pandemic. A lot of Republicans say, and a lot of Democrats too say that's not the case. So, you know, back to the vice president, she has done things. She has focused, though, on why people are coming, what resources can be in other countries, and less on the border. Well, let's look ahead now to 2024. The Hill reported this week that President Biden has told former President Obama he plans to run for re-election. The Hill's reporting cited two anonymous sources. Biden has spoken about 2024 publicly before during a press conference last month. He told reporters he'd be, quote, very fortunate to run against Trump again in 2024. But recent data from polling analysis website 538 puts Biden's approval rating at just under 42 percent and his age, 79 years old, has also come up in questions about a second run. We're hearing from some of you today. The Real David Petrie tweeted, not to be ageist, but there are age limits for jobs that impact public safety. If you can be too young to be president, you can be too old to be president, too. Same rules should apply for members of Congress. And Rhonda tweeted and agrees in two words, new blood, pass the torch, new opportunities. Abby, how likely are we to see Biden on the ballot in 2024? You know, I still think that We can't say for sure, um, to be honest. I mean, when I talk to Democrats privately, many of them are pretty much 50-50 on the question. Many of them don't think that he will run again. And um, But if you're a sitting president, you kind of have to say that at this point in your administration. You can't say that you're not going to run again. And so I I think that we are maybe in a 50-50 space with Biden. There is widespread acknowledgement uh, within the Democratic Party that there is a lack of enthusiasm that runs very deep. Some of it is a generational thing, the perception that Biden um, is not up to the task for a number of reasons, is not inspiring. His approval ratings with young voters has been truly a shock to many um, people working in democratic politics. He's seeing numbers, low numbers in his approval rating with those young people that I think many people did not expect. And so uh, there's, there's a real feeling that until the moment that uh, the decision is really made, the answer publicly and even privately is going to be that he is running again. But there is as good a chance that he would not run as there is that he would run. Uh, would uh, would Democrats want to see him replaced on the ballot with someone who is, um, you know, in the same demographic age group? I I don't think so. Most Democrats I talk to say they think that what is needed for the party in the future is younger blood that kind of taps into the energy that is out there in the Democratic base. Well, the Washington Post reported this week that if Biden does not seek re-election, as we said, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is open to entering the race for the Democratic nomination. This would be Senator Sanders' third presidential bid. He's 80 years old. Shane, are there younger candidates who are realistic options at this point? Well, there are certainly younger candidates. We saw many of them running, uh, you know, in the most recent cycle. The current vice president, uh, of course, um, Pete Buttigieg, the current transportation secretary. There are others out there. I think the question is, can any of them beat Donald Trump? And where Biden seems to be going with this is, I am still the candidate who can beat him. I did it once. I can do it again. 
We'll see. Donald Trump is also 75 years old, so none of these people are spring chickens. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more after the break. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is testifying in a Georgia courtroom today. That's after some of her constituents filed a lawsuit challenging her eligibility to run for re-election. The voters argue she participated in the insurrection on January 6th, which would disqualify her from running for office under the 14th Amendment. I don't care what the lawsuit says. I did nothing wrong. And this is a scam. Okay, so I'm not entertaining this. That was Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene speaking with local news station WTVC earlier this week. Shane, how big of a deal is this? Well, I think it could be a big deal. I and mean, we've talked about this on the on the show before about these efforts to challenge essentially the the candidacy, if you will, of people who uh, are seen as participating in the insurrection or condoning it. Um, you know, and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, is one of these members who has not only been very outspoken in her views that the election was stolen from President Trump, but has made that kind of a central piece of her identity as a lawmaker. Um, uh, this isn't merely something that she runs. On it's something that she has gone to Congress to try to try and push. So to see a challenge like this against her is pretty significant. And if it were actually, of course, to have the effect of making her unable to run for re-election, that would be uh, pretty profound and be uh, quite a signal to other people who have been espousing these false claims that the election was rigged. Now we should mention uh, that early voting for the Georgia primary starts on May second, and the primary is on May seventeenth. What's the time frame here, Shane? Uh, I don't know whether or not the the, the, the court's going to decide this in time, uh, but I mean I think this is you know if it if it's if, if if there's a ruling that comes before the primary, obviously, or before the general election, that could have a real issue. I mean, if she were the nominee and then were found to not be able to run, I guess that you know it would depend on what the state rules are in Georgia for somebody to replace her. Uh, Abby, the hearing today makes her the first member of Congress to testify under oath about their involvement in the insurrection. W- what are you listening for in her testimony? Well, I I think that, uh, frankly, I don't have a huge amount of expectation when it comes to Marjorie Taylor Greene um, and the truthfulness of some of the things that she will say. But there are some real questions uh, that are swirling in Washington and probably in this hearing about what, if any, connection she had to any of the people who were organizing, uh, you know, rallying, breaking into the Capitol, uh, that's a real question. In the days leading up to the January 6th insurrection, some lawmakers had said that they saw other lawmakers uh, giving tours of the Capitol to some people who were then found at the Capitol. And so I think those are the types of questions that would speak to what actual responsibility or relationship did she have with uh, the the rioters and the insurrectionists. That is a different question from whether she rhetorically supported them or whether she um, she said things that were positive about them. This would have to be something more concrete. It would have to be something more along the lines of of real communications with organizers about their plans to come to the Capitol. Um, or even about things that are more specific than that as it relates to the violence that occurred on that day. 
Well, an attorney working with former President Donald Trump has refused to release 37,000 pages of emails to the January 6th House Select Committee. The subcommittee is investigating the attack on the Capitol and the broader effort by Trump and his associates to overturn the 2020 election results. And the decision about what to do with these emails is now before U.S. District Court Judge David Carter. Anita, who is attorney John Eastman and why is he important? Yeah, John Eastman was someone um, who advised President Trump. There was some question about when he was his lawyer, if he was. President Trump had a lot of advisors, both inside the White House and outside the White House. A lot of people in those final days, um, you know, after the election and around the the time of January 6th, you know, advised him, came to the White House, talked to him. Uh, He is asserted attorney-client privilege for these uh, pages of thousands of emails saying that they related to his work for uh, President Trump and that he doesn't have to give, give, turn those over. The January 6th committee, you know, has objected to basically all of those um, claims. And so this is in front of this judge. This is very interesting because this is the judge that has already basically said that he believes that Eastman and Trump are, quote, more likely than not to have engaged in sort of a criminal conspiracy to obstruct Congress. So, um, you know, there are a lot of people on Capitol Hill that are looking to these emails. They they want them. He worked for a university at the time. Uh, and, and these are all university-related emails. Uh, but but what they're looking for is clues about what, of course, President Trump was doing and thinking and acting and how he was uh, trying to, uh, you know, urge supporters what on January 6th and what he was trying to get them to do. And so there's still some questions about that. We, the January 6th committee has gotten a ton of emails, a ton of documents, but there's still some holes there. And so they're still looking for some information about what was going on at that time. Shane, if these emails are released, what will that mean for the subcommittee's work? We've been watching this for months and months now and and trying to figure out, okay, when are we going to have a final report or a final understanding of what they what they found? Yeah, it's hard to know because we don't exactly know what's in the emails, what bearing they'd ultimately have on the report. But it does underscore <clears throat> that the January 6th committee has been battling on multiple fronts and it hasn't all been going smoothly. They've faced a lot of hurdles in trying to get testimony and trying to get documents. And I think that there are real questions, you know, and people who are critical of the committee or just plain skeptical of it wonder what it's really going to ultimately produce. I mean, maybe something that goes into the record that shows what happened. Of course, Republicans probably won't embrace or accept it. But the act of doing this uh, of seeking these emails has already created some very profound and important rulings. And this one from Judge Carter that we were just alluding to in the Eastman case, where he found that the president likely committed a crime, that is, you know, I think, very significant on its face and has real political implications as well. If not for the January 6th committee's work, this question of whether or not Eastman had to turn over the emails never would have come before the court and not have generated that decision from the judge. So we have these legal challenges, and yet in other ways, it's like some have forgotten January 6th ever happened. Well, Mr. Giuliani, with all of the controversy that's surrounding you right now, I think it surprises us all that you're here on The mass Singer. 
That was the moment Rudy Giuliani was unveiled on Fox's The Masked Singer Wednesday night. The same Rudy Giuliani, who was the personal lawyer for former President Trump and who was a key player in the rally near the White House on January 6th, just before the attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Giuliani has been subpoenaed by the January 6th House subcommittee. His apartment was searched by federal investigators last year. When Giuliani's identity was revealed, Masked Singer Judge Ken Jong walked off the set in protest. Meanwhile, an Ohio man who said he was, quote, following presidential orders when he stormed the U.S. Capitol was found guilty of obstructing Congress last week, and he faces 20 years in prison. Anita, just what do you make of of this moment we're in? I, I was a bit befuddled, I'll say. Yeah. Well, it's just a lot of things going on. I mean, it's been it's been a year plus, right, since this happened. Uh, people have gone gone on with life. I mean, some people have gone on with life. And yet you see in Washington, and particularly on Capitol Hill, these repercussions of what happened January 6th, and of course, with with the election, you know, staying there. I mean, there was a scare uh, on Capitol Hill a few days ago, uh, turned out to be nothing, but the Capitol, some buildings were evacuated. And it had a lot of people that were there, journalists and staffers and and anyone else who were there remembering what happened on January 6th, thinking, oh gosh, is there is there something else happening? So I do think it just really depends on who you are and what you're doing, um, uh, how much January 6th is staying with you. And it's just really interesting to see this, you know, in Washington where a lot of people are going on with life, but we still see the Department of Justice, Congress, really trying to understand what happened that day, um, you know, over a year ago now. Shane, what, what about you? How are you reflecting on this moment? You know, it was once said about Rudy Giuliani when he was assistant U.S. attorney in New York that the most dangerous place in the city was between Rudy Giuliani and a television camera. Um, And it's been said about others, too. You know, Rudy Giuliani is a publicity seeker, and he finds a willing audience uh, on the Fox television network and someone who I I place that is more interested in exploiting the spectacle of Rudy Giuliani and it's seemingly not really paying any attention to what he's been implicated in. Um, And I mean, I agree with Anita, there's this sense of people kind of moving on, but there's, of course, you know, we need to acknowledge there is a significant portion of the country that does not believe that anything wrong happened on January 6th. And I think that the way that Rudy Giuliani has sort of re-entered the public circus this week is kind of a reflection of that. And, you know, we shouldn't confuse, obviously, kind of Hollywood TV production with maybe some of the things that go on here in Washington, but um, we all live in this big swirl, you know, together. And I think a lot of people probably just kind of got a kick out of the fact that Rudy Giuliani was on the show. Uh, And the judge who walked off is probably pretty reflective of those people who feel that that was a very bad decision. Let's move to some business news. Netflix shares dropped nearly 40 percent after the streaming service lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter of the year. Netflix says the dip was caused in part by the service leaving Russia during the invasion of Ukraine. Abby, what else might be contributing to this huge loss? Interestingly, Netflix says password sharing is a big problem, which I think those of us, listen, those of you listening at home might not find that particularly surprising. Um, password sharing has, it, it takes up a surprising amount, according to Netflix, of um, potential subscriptions. So they're, they're estimating it's about 100 million people using Netflix on someone else's account. So as they're trying to expand their business, they believe the password sharing is kind of cannibalizing potential subscriptions. 
On top of that, you have inflation, a global phenomenon. You also have the pandemic waning. People are not at home as much as they used to be. They're going back out to work. And when they go back out to work and to other parts of their lives, they're spending a lot more money than they used to. And so the cost of Netflix, which has actually gone up in recent years, all of that is contributing to a dampening of their um, their actual performance against their expectations for the growth of their business. And, and frankly, for all companies who are dealing with, people don't have t- as much time as they used to to sit down and watch Bridgerton uh, episode after episode for multiple seasons. So it, it, that's going to be something I think all of these businesses have to, to contend with. Right. Netflix wasn't the only streaming service filling the pinch. On Wednesday, Paramount stock was down over 20%. Disney fell more than 5%. On Thursday, Warner Brothers Discovery announced it was shuttering the new streaming service CNN Plus just three weeks after it launched. I want to quickly move on to news out of Florida. The Florida House passed a bill that would strip Disney of its self-governing status. The bill is now on its way to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's desk. And the special district status has been in place since 1967 and allows Disney to control its own land, including collecting its own taxes, while also being responsible for for providing services such as road building, electricity, and water. Disney is Florida's largest private employer. Briefly, why is this happening and what does it mean for Floridians? This is happening because Disney has spoken out against some efforts by Republican lawmakers and Governor Ron DeSantis, also a Republican, to uh, to restrict what can be taught in schools. The, the, what, what's happening here is that they're trying to punish Disney for, um, for speaking out. Disney was under a lot of pressure from their own employees to say something. And now Florida lawmakers, Republicans, are saying, uh, if you are going to speak out on these issues, we are going to take away any special statuses that you might have under the law. So they are uh, taking away this distinction that gave Disney basically control over the area that they operated in. Uh, it has some pluses and minuses. They uh, Disney will lose some control over that area, but it might mean that the neighboring jurisdictions then have to pick up the tab for all the things that Disney was paying itself for the fire department, the police department, fixing potholes, um, even the debt that that area has taken on. So it's a complicated situation and it may in some ways, backfire on Republicans in that state. So let's wrap up with one other piece of business news. The median cost of a home rose by 15% this March, up to $375,000. That's according to the National Association of Realtors. At the same time, home sales are now at their lowest level in two years, with Americans selling their homes at pre-pandemic numbers. Shane, what's going on with the housing market? Well, we have seen supply being very limited and demand is up, up, up. Uh, People want to buy houses. There aren't that many available. There aren't that many new houses being built in part because it's become so much more expensive to find the materials. Um, Also, uh, it's going to be harder to buy a house now that interest rates are going up. So what's really happening here is that first-time buyers who economists say need to be a sizable portion of that kind of pool buying homes are just finding it harder to get them. These, These prices are kind of out of reach. It does raise the question of whether we are in a bubble because these prices have been rising so dramatically and steadily for so long. Uh, But if you're a first-time homebuyer right now trying to get in, it has just become a lot harder. We'll wrap things up there. That's Shane Harris, the national security reporter with The Washington Post. Also with us today, Abby Phillip, an anchor for Inside Politics Sunday on CNN, and Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, Abby, Shane, thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. 
1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. Chris Castano is our digital editor. This is the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. Putin is banking on us losing interest. He's betting on Western unity will crack. He's still betting on that. And once again, we're going to prove him wrong. We will never fail in our determination to defend freedom and oppose tyranny. It's as simple as that. Every week, we set aside this hour to focus on what's been going on overseas. We have stories from China, Rwanda, and France. And of course, the world's attention is still on the war in Ukraine. Let's get to all of it with our panel. Our guests this week are Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. Dave, it's great to have you back. Great to be with you. Idris Ali from Reuters. He covers foreign policy and the Pentagon. Idris, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me. And David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. David, welcome back. Hello. Moscow launched a new phase in their war against Ukraine this week, focused on the eastern part of the country. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, confirmed the new military strategy in an interview with India Today on Tuesday. The operation in the east of Ukraine uh, is uh, uh, aimed, as was announced from the very beginning, to fully liberate the Donetsk and Lugansk republics. And this operation uh, will, will continue. It is beginning, uh, I mean, another stage of this operation is beginning, uh, and I'm sure this will be uh, a very important moment of this entire special operation. Dave, we heard Russia's foreign ministers say the aim of this operation is to, quote-unquote, fully liberate Donetsk and Luhansk. What actions do you anticipate from the Russian military in the coming days and weeks? Right now, obviously, a lot of the focus is on what's happening in Mariupol. The Russians yesterday uh, basically declared victory there, although there are still uh, up to potentially 2,000 Ukrainian troops hold out in this steel plant in the city there. Vladimir Putin uh, made a rare public uh, military statement telling his defense minister to seal off the plant but not to raid it. Uh, But the rest of the city has effectively fallen under Russian control. Uh, Elsewhere, they're continuing to try to make territorial gains in this eastern Donbass region. We have some mixed signals today because uh, a Russian commander did come out and say that Russia wants to gain control of all of southern Ukraine, uh, which is obviously expanding beyond this eastern Donbass region. But for now, uh, that's where the heavy fighting is taking place. And it is the area where there has been war since 2014, uh, when Russia first moved in to eastern Ukraine. So we're seeing more of a set-piece battle this time around. Uh, We know where the fighting is likely to be, and we know more or less what Russia's tactics are likely to be in this region, uh, as opposed to before when they were fighting on four different fronts across a lot of Ukraine and targeting all of the major cities. And what about Russia's motivation? What led them to shift the military strategy away from capturing Ukraine's capital and instead focus on the east? Uh, so, uh, you know, basically they were, this was not by choice. Uh, they attempted to take Kiev, the capital, uh, and they were repulsed. And they basically uh, have gone from a quite ambitious strategy of potentially regime change inside of Ukraine to, for now, a more limited strategy, uh, which is, as Lavrov pointed out, 
their original justification, or at least part of it, to quote-unquote liberate uh, this part of Ukraine. So it was not uh, plan A for the Russians, but military realities have forced them into this scenario. Uh, It does appear that Vladimir Putin is looking for something uh, in the relatively short term that he can claim as a victory. Uh, And obviously there's debate about whether the war could still spread beyond this region as things move forward, or indeed whether Putin will be successful in taking all of uh, the Donbass. And with all of these Western military shipments coming in, uh, there's increasing optimism on the other side that maybe the Ukrainians can fight back uh, and not allow Putin to be successful in the East. But right now, obviously, it's all still in play. President Putin congratulated his military for what he claimed was a successful capture of Mariupol. Russian forces have been attacking the port city since March 1st. Ukrainian officials say more than 20,000 people have been killed. But Ukrainian commanders say they're still fighting and won't lay down their weapons. About 2,000 fighters remain at a steel mill. Idris, what more do we know about what's going on there? Yeah, so I mean, Mariupol's sort of been the site of some of the fiercest battles um, within Ukraine. And obviously, you know, there have been quite a few fierce battles within Ukraine. Um, it was a city of about 400,000, and they're down to about 100,000. So you can sort of imagine the devastations that, that's taken place. And, and really, the attention that has focused on is this Azov's steel complex, which is, you know, a steel factory, but it's got underground bunkers that can really absorb a lot of strikes and, and bombs. And so what we know as of today is the Russians claim that that they've taken over the city. Um, the United States and the Ukrainians say they have not. But there was an in- interesting development yesterday where President Putin told his defense minister to stop trying to capture the um, steel factory or the steel complex, but instead encircle it and um, sort of focus on other areas. And it's actually quite a smart strategy because the Russian troops were really getting bogged down um, in trying to take this complex and not being very successful. And so now they've come up with a strategy of essentially trying to blockade it, make sure food doesn't go in or out, essentially starve them. um, And so that the other troops that were previously focused on this can then go and sort of focus on other areas. So we're at a situation where the troops inside, some of the civilians inside this factory are there it's very tough for anything to come in or out. And and so we're sort of at a stalemate. Um, and, and, and in the meanwhile, the troops that were trying to focus on it um, have started moving away and trying to take other parts uh, of Mariupol and then, you know, focus on the south and the east as well. David, so far efforts to establish a humanitarian corridor for more than 100,000 people trapped in that city have been largely unsuccessful. But as we've said, Russian troops have not been able to completely overrun a city it was expected to take with some ease. What does this battle tell us about the larger war? Well, you're quite right that there hasn't been, uh, there have been many people saying, including the mayor of Mariupol recently, saying that you had to get all the civilians uh, out of that city. Why has there not been a humanitarian corridor to evacuate them that has lasted any length of time? It's not because of logistical problems. It's because people do not trust the Russians. There are Russian reports that they have taken 140,000 people out of the city into Russia, which the Ukrainian government is saying would be a war crime. Um, You also have the defenders of that uh, four square mile steel complex saying that if they're offered this deal, which was repeated by the Russians today, that if the Ukrainian defenders laid down their arms and raised a white flag, then the civilians would be allowed to go. And you saw the deputy commander of the holdouts in that steel mill telling the BBC that how can you believe anything the Russians say? We, We know that we cannot make that kind of an exchange. But what's so extraordinary about the situation there is it's not just this extraordinarily intense battle Uh, so that the Russians can close that uh, last bit of the coastline and build a land bridge. 
it's also politically just a window on the complexity of this situation because Mariupol before the war was a Russian-speaking city in the main and full of people, many of whom supported Russia broadly. They, they were much closer to Moscow in sympathies, many of them, and they were particularly hostile to the Azov Battalion. Now, this is a staple of Russian propaganda, that their argument that Ukraine has been taken over by Nazis, that they point above all to this group that was formed in 2014 to liberate Mariupol from a Russian-backed separatist group. This Azov Battalion, it has to be said, did have neo-Nazi links, certainly when it was founded. There's debate about how much they've been purged, their neo-Nazi links. Those ex-neo-Nazis are now the only remaining Ukrainian defenders in that city. And you're seeing reporting, gleaned by my own colleagues from The Economist, that to their astonishment, the Russian-speaking surviving civilians in Mariupol, who used to regard these Azov Battalion as the worst of the worst, the Nazis and the enemy, they're now, that's their only source of food and, and, and now defense. And so you're seeing how the politics has been completely thrown in the air. And Russia claiming to defend the interests of Russian speakers is destroying this Russian-speaking city uh, in this extraordinary, uh, brutal uh, sort of scene from another century. Well, Major Serhi Volina is leading the Ukrainian troops, continuing to hold on to that steel plant in Mariupol. And he posted a message to his Facebook page Wednesday, which was translated by the Washington Post. He says, quote, this is our address to the world. This could be our last message. We might only have a few days or even hours remaining. Enemy forces are 10 times bigger than ours. We're defending one object, the plant where Mariupol military, garrison and civilians are caught up by the war. Dave, why has Mariupol been such an important city for the Ukrainian military to hold on to from both a strategic standpoint, but also for the nation's morale? Yeah, so several reasons there. One is that it is in the Donbass region. It's the third major population center. Russia already controls Donetsk and Lugansk. This is the third major city there. It would be the biggest city to fall to Russia so far in the war, and it is a significant port city uh, on the Azov Sea. So there are multiple reasons why uh, it would be a significant target for Russia. Obviously, if it does fall, as Idris was pointing out, it would free up a lot of the Russian troops. And Russia has poured a lot of troops into the fight for Mariupol. Uh, if it falls completely to Russia, they will be able to move some of their forces uh, north into the fight elsewhere in the Donbass region. So it's strategically important. Uh, and then there's the symbolism, which basically Russia does not have a lot to point to so far in the war and, you know, and call a victory. We're headed toward victory day in Russia, which is seen as a significant uh, point where Putin has to point to something and say, look what we've accomplished. Taking Mariupol would probably be the single biggest accomplishment of the Russian war effort thus far. We got this email from Leroy in Evanston, Illinois. Leroy says, I challenge you to come up with anything more outrageous than the head of the Russian Orthodox Church vigorously promoting Putin's campaign of genocidal killing of innocent Ukrainian women and children. Every leader of faith needs to condemn him in the most powerful way. We should note here that Pope Francis said this week he will not meet with the head of the Russian Orthodox Church as planned in June. Francis opposes the war. 
Doug emails, how about revoking the visas of Russian students in U.S. universities? Given a full explanation to each about why they would return to their motherland with a grievance toward Putin, and those grievances would spread like ripples on a pond. We also got this comment from Jean, who says Pope Francis could be helpful by announcing this Sunday that he will personally escort the besieged civilians of Mariupol in a caravan of as many buses as necessary to safety outside the city. That's what Jesus would do. What do you think about this week's news? You can email us at 1A at WAMU.org or tweet us at 1A. Well, President Biden's message to Ukraine this week, more help is on the way. On Thursday, President Biden stressed that the U.S. is far from alone in delivering the weapons Ukraine needs. We won't always be able to advertise everything that our partners are doing to support Ukraine and fight for freedom. But to modernize Teddy Roosevelt's famous advice, sometimes we will speak softly and carry a large javelin because we're sending a lot of those in as well. Idris, what do we know about what's in this latest package? Yeah, so yesterday, President Biden announced another 800 million package in weapons uh, to the Ukrainians. So now we're at about $3 billion in just the past two months, which which is a lot of money going into Ukraine. And, you know, basically what we've seen is the first two months of the war was very much focused on large cities, Kiev um, and some of the cities nearby. And now the fighting is moving towards the east, like we talked about. And that requires a different type of sort of weaponry. It's been described as a sort of Kansas-like terrain, very flat. And so sort of the tactics that were being used previously, which is, you know, small special forces, Ukrainian units using javelins or stinger missiles, just isn't as easy anymore. So the latest package is sort of an acknowledgement of that. And and they're really pumping in a lot of artillery, like the howitzers that can basically be used from long range and can fire into Russian positions, destroying tanks. Um, And, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're getting a lot of ammunition as well, which was a big concern because you can give all the systems you want, but unless there's ammo to use, um, it's a bit useless. Um, And the one interesting part of this package that was announced was sort of these secretive drones known as the quote-unquote ghost drones that were essentially developed by the Air Force and and sort of modified um, for the Ukrainians. And so they're being sent as well. We don't know much about them, but the fact that more drones are being sent is also another acknowledgement that, you know, two months into this war, um, Russians still don't control the air over Ukraine. And so I think the latest package is an acknowledgement of the different and changing battlefield dynamics, but also of the fact that the Ukrainians have done pretty well. And now they're sort of giving them more advanced weapons that, you know, again, a couple of months ago would have been unimaginable. Now, Dave, you tweeted that the U.S. is talking about weapons shipments in, in a different way than the EU and Germany in particular. What's going on there? Yeah, so I just noted this when I heard President Biden say that Americans should be proud that basically U.S. weapons and intelligence were pushing Putin uh, back being used to defeat Russia in this war. And I earlier in the week had listened to what Olaf Scholz told the German Bundestag about weapons. He's been under a lot of pressure to provide heavy weaponry to Ukraine. He has refused to do so up to this point. Well, let's listen. Let's listen to the chancellor. This is Olaf Scholz speaking earlier this week. You'll hear his remarks through an interpreter. Ukraine continues to have our full solidarity and support. At the same time, as heads of state and government, it's our duty to prevent the war from spreading to other countries. Therefore, NATO does not want to and cannot intervene directly in the war. Our policy is guided by these principles. Maximum support for Ukraine, but no NATO involvement in the war. Dave, what line do you hear Germany trying to walk here? 
Well, first of all, I, I think that the Ukrainians would dispute the idea that Germany is providing maximum support uh, to their war effort. They want German tanks. They want other uh, military vehicles that Germany has thus far not provided. Olaf Scholz has said a couple different things about why he's been more cautious. One is that he's worried about the threat of uh, this escalating beyond Ukraine's borders, of providing things that could be seen as provocative uh, by Russia. We heard some of that from the Pentagon and from Washington earlier in the war. Those fears are more or less uh, gone at this point from the U.S. perspective, but they're still there from the German side. And then there were a few reasons that made a little bit less sense. He said Germany can't stand on its own in providing weapons. Well, a lot of other countries are providing uh, heavy weaponry. You know, he, he gave a couple different explanations that people in his own government are saying don't exactly hold up. But the big picture here is that the Germans are taking a much more cautious approach. And I think that might be in part because of how they see this war evolving. Olaf Scholz is still saying that this war can only end with a diplomatic outcome. Uh, they're worried in the same way the U.S. is about the use of certain different weapons systems, you know, even tactical nuclear weapons by Russia. They want to reduce that risk. Uh, but when you what you hear from analysts in Washington and, and increasingly from officials too is the idea that they think Ukraine can put up a fight, can push Russia back on the battlefield. Uh, they don't think this is a case of waiting for Putin to take a bit of territory and then sit back down at the table, in part because they don't know that Putin's ever going to really cut a deal. And so they're piling much more into the idea that this is going to be decided militarily. And if that's the case, as Idris was just laying out, there are weapon systems that Ukraine needs if, they need, if they're going to have a chance to win this battle in the Donbass. And so that's where I think the perspective is shifting more on the U.S. side than it is, at least in Germany and maybe elsewhere in Western Europe as well. Well, David, the Times of London this week reported that elite forces from the British Army are in Ukraine training local forces. So for all we've been hearing about, you know, no NATO boots on the ground, how do you train Ukrainian forces to use some of this gear if you're not there in person? Well, I should say that the Times of London uh, has not been widely followed by other media in this. And they also didn't say that they had seen the SAS on the ground. They said that they were quoting uh, Ukrainian officers saying that they had been trained by the SAS. And Idris uh, is much more the Pentagon and defense expert than I am. But the SAS is very small. It's very elite. I'm not sure that you would be risking them as trainers in Ukraine right now. Officially, the British pulled their trainers out of the country uh, about 10 days before the Russians invaded. They are training uh, Ukrainian troops in the UK on some of the weapon systems that they are planning to give them. But I think Britain, along with other countries in Europe, is talking more about uh, trying to encourage former members of the Soviet sort of satellite bloc, so the Poles, uh, the Slovenes, some others who still have old Soviet kit that you can send straight into Ukraine without needing to retrain Ukrainian troops. And then countries like the UK uh, and others are talking about backfilling. So if Slovenia and Poland deliver, say, old Soviet tanks to the Ukrainians, then the British are saying that they're looking seriously at sending uh, more modern British tanks to the Slovenes and the Poles to kind of fill the gaps. And so I think that there is some skepticism about the idea that British special forces are on the ground, because although Olaf Scholz is, is slightly talking about a straw man or saying that he's not helping because he's worried NATO will be dragged into the fight, I think the idea of NATO boots on the ground would be a really extraordinary risk, uh, not least because you could hand uh, the, the the Russians an extraordinary propaganda win if they ever found NATO forces in Ukraine. Idris, whether it's it's training or the flow of weapons into Ukraine, is it happening quickly enough for Ukrainian forces to defend the country? 
Yeah, the Ukrainians would say no. Um, and the reality, it probably isn't because the, the, the rate at which they're using the ammunition, the rate at which they're using the drones and sort of the weaponry is just almost impossible to catch up to. So I don't think there will honestly ever be a point where it's fast enough. With that being said, what the Pentagon and some of the NATO officials we speak to say is, you know, we're moving as fast as we can and, and, and it's sort of at record-breaking speed. Um, it is interesting because once the, the weapons are sort of authorized by the Biden administration, they don't fly into Ukraine. So they fly into neighboring countries like Poland. The Ukrainians will then either come get them or they'll be moved to the border. So it's, 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 it's a bit of a more complicated process because like Dave was saying, you know, NATO has been very hesitant to get involved in sending troops, which would be easier to just fly them in, in into Ukraine, is something they're not doing. So that adds to the sort of the, the, the bottlenecks and, and getting it through the border. So um, the U.S. says they're doing as as, as fast as they can. Uh, Ukrainians say it's not fast enough. And the reality is I don't think it ever will be fast enough. Well, more than a dozen European countries, including Slovenia, Italy and Spain, as well as the European Union, have reopened their embassies in Kiev or intend to do so. Idris, what pressure is the White House under to do the same? Yeah, and you know, in the past couple of days, um, uh, Spain has said it's going to open its embassy. The French have talked about their intention, and and today uh, Britain said that they're going to open their embassy in Kiev. I mean, it's important to remember that the United States not only doesn't have an embassy in Kiev, they don't have an embassy in Lviv either, which is where a lot of other countries moved uh, their embassy to all the embassy personnel are in Poland. So there's a lot of pressure um, on the United States to at least reconsider it seriously. We haven't seen that in terms of any movement towards that. I mean, the other pressure that we're seeing is for senior U.S. officials to make a visit to, to Ukraine or Kiev. It, you know, at the very least, um, we've seen Boris Johnson go there, the Spanish and the Danish prime ministers were there earlier this week. And, and so I think the pressure of the embassy plus the pressure of some senior official going to Kyiv is adding up. And I think sooner rather than later, one of them will have to give. Well, President Biden expressed disappointment that he was unable to visit Ukraine during his trip to Poland last week. And President Zelensky expressed optimism about Biden's eventual visit, while White House Secretary Jen Psaki said last week there are no current plans for the president to go. David, what's the relationship between President Zelensky and President Biden at this point? Look, President Zelensky uh, is not in a position to, uh, to to pick a fight with the Americans. I think clearly uh, he has been using this extraordinary kind of bully pulpit he has of his ability to meet not just leaders visiting him in Kiev, and we've seen a stream of them, as you say, but he's also been beaming into parliaments uh, around the world, uh, sometimes nagging, sometimes praising, thanking, pleading with people to send in weapons. He is turning into this extraordinary kind of not just the leader of Ukraine, but also this kind of incarnation of Ukrainian resistance, this former uh, professional comedian and actor who's really taken on this role of kind of the national icon of a man transformed into a genuine hero. And so clearly, uh, the Ukrainians are briefing that they are frustrated uh, with the slow pace, as, as Idris says. But we saw the Ukrainian prime minister uh, in the White House for a meeting, and we saw President Biden kind of saying that he was very keen to be seen sort of uh, showing solidarity. But it's interesting. I mean, for example, where I am in China, the Chinese have basically been playing a disgraceful role uh, where they pretend to be neutral, but they're quite clearly hoping that Putin wins, more or less, because they want to deny the West a victory. It's a pretty morally abhorrent position they're taking. But President Zelensky has not fallen out with the Chinese. He's even praised the Chinese for what he said was their humanitarian concern. There is no evidence of a humanitarian concern here in China, but Zelensky knows that he needs all the help he can get because he's up against Vladimir Putin trying to destroy his country. 
Well, while Russia's stance on the war may seem like a united front to casual observers, a new report from Bloomberg suggests that there are cracks in that foundation. The sources who spoke with the outlet on, content, on condition of anonymity told Bloomberg the war is a quote-unquote catastrophic mistake. David, what do you take away from reporting that some Kremlin insiders are concerned about what Putin might do next and what the long-term consequences could be for Russia? I don't think it's a surprise that in a country with an autocratic strongman leader who has taken a decision that is going to uh, crater the Russian economy, that you will find people in some government ministries and big state-owned companies who have said off the record that they think this is a, a mistake that is going to destroy the Russian economy. But the problem is that Vladimir Putin probably isn't that worried about anonymous, you know, whoever these technocrats are who've spoken to Bloomberg, and I'm not knocking Bloomberg's reporting, I'm sure these people are, are senior as they say, but in that kind of a country, Putin has to worry about losing the, the loyalty of his army, losing the uh, loyalty of his spy chiefs, and losing the streets. And for the moment, depressingly, the Russian propaganda machine, which is pouring out an absolute torrent of lies about uh, Nazis in Ukraine and war crimes being committed by Ukraine, uh, accusing the Ukrainians of hoaxing and staging some of those awful scenes we saw with civilian massacres, stuff that the, the rest of the world sees as kind of bizarre and grotesque propaganda. Unfortunately, the, 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 the evidence is, including polling, that a large number of Russians are rallying around the flag and believing that. And that's probably much more important to someone like Vladimir Putin in a country like Russia than grumbling from you know, people who may be kind of Western educated technocrats uh, talking to their friends in Bloomberg. So it's great reporting. I'm, I'm not dis sort of disrespecting their reporting. But, you know, just here in China, you know, technocrats and, 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 and elites, their grumbling doesn't matter because these are these are dictatorships run by strong men. Dave, but are there concerns about the long term consequences of this war for Russia? I'm sure that there are. And I guess it would depend uh, who you're asking. I, I, you know, I, I think that um, there are certainly concerns among people who are trying to keep this economy afloat, uh, you know, inside the finance ministry or the central bank. Uh, there's a whole lot of maneuvering that they're having to do just to try to keep things, as David said, from cratering. I mean, there's a real sense, I'm sure, of what the economic reality is uh, for those people inside the government. Uh, as, as David said, Putin relies on quite a small circle of advisors. He's only really seen with, uh, you know, a handful of quite hawkish security chiefs and maybe the heads of key state-owned companies. Uh, you know, these are the people he seems to be regularly in contact with. I'm not sure uh, that he at this point will feel particularly threatened uh, by the idea of the government turning against him, as David said. But, you know, if we're taking the 30,000-foot view on what's happening to Russia right now, it's getting more autocratic. The economy is getting uh, constrained quite heavily. Uh, people are fleeing. There's a brain drain going on right now inside Russia. Uh, the freedoms that people had in terms of posting online, reading independent media, those are evaporating in real time. It is a different Russia that will emerge from this war than the Russia that went into it. And what the long-term prospects are for an ordinary Russian person, even if they may be inclined to support Putin and rally around the flag, uh, there's little indication that their life will be made better by this war that Vladimir Putin has decided to wage in Ukraine. We got this comment from Stephen in Maryland who says, something I don't think has been discussed is what happens after the war. Does Russia remain a pariah? Does trade resume without interruption? Do we accept them on the world stage as if nothing happened? Idris, are you thinking that far ahead? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and it question that, that needs to be asked is when does the war end, right? What we're looking at is, is 
probably years-long sort of protracted conflict. I mean, you know, the war in, in the Donbass started in 2014, and it's still going on, and this is just another phase. So I think the question officials in Washington and, and in Europe are asking is, what does the end of the war look like? Is it when all Russian troops leave, or is it when fighting sort of becomes an stalemate? And I think those questions will lead to the answer of what do we do with Russia next? Parts of Afghanistan have faced a string of bombings this week. One bombing inside a Shiite mosque in northern Afghanistan killed at least 12 people and wounded more than 40. And two suicide bombs at a boys' school in the capital, Kabul, killed at least six people and wounded more than 20. And an important story we're following in Africa right now is the flooding that continues to devastate South Africa. Last week, storms in the Durban area destroyed thousands of homes and led to the deaths of at least 448 people. Denmark announced this week that it's in talks with Rwanda about a new deal. It would transfer those seeking asylum in the EU to the East African nation. The British government is also moving ahead with a similar plan, and it's one that's been met with fierce criticism, notably from Julian Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is what he had to say on Easter Sunday. The details are for politics and politicians. The principle must stand the judgment of God, and it cannot. So what about the politics? Priti Patel is minister in charge of Homeland Security for the UK. She spoke to the House of Commons on Tuesday. Access to the UK's asylum system must be based on need, not the ability to pay people smugglers. And the demands on the current system, the cost of British taxpayers and the scandalous abuses are increasing. It will deter illegal and dangerous routes of entry to the UK and, Mr Speaker, provide a common sense approach to controlling immigration, both legal and illegal. I commend the statement to the House. David, what more can you tell us about this move and how it would work? So the background to this is in 1951, the UK, along with a whole bunch of other countries, ratified the Refugee Convention. And that was an enormous step born out of the horrors of World War II. And it's said that anyone who can prove that they face a well-grounded fear of persecution on the grounds of race or religion or creed uh, can be given safety and that a country cannot turn them away and must not return them to danger. They must be given protection if they have a well-grounded fear. And that has become an increasingly heavy burden for lots of countries in the world because the world is now a very mobile place and there's a lot of horror and misery. Other countries have have done things like saying, well, we can't process these claims to test whether they really are genuine refugees on our soil, so we'll outsource that to other places. So Australia came under criticism for sending boat people to the tiny island of Nauru and to Papua New Guinea to have them processed. But after that, if they genuinely proved they were refugees, the Australians accepted that they had to take them in. Under Boris Johnson and his Conservative government, which won office on a kind of anti-foreigner Brexit vote in part, they have gone a a much greater step. They are saying that if people cross the English Channel in boats and are caught, they will not only not process their claims and try and prove that they're refugees in the UK, they will never be given asylum in the UK. That the UK is instead going to pay Rwanda, one of the poorest countries in the world, with a human rights record that the British government used to uh, criticize as a dangerous autocracy until only about a year ago. Now suddenly the same British government is saying that Rwanda is one of the safest places in the world, that it is a dynamic country, and it'll be a great life for refugees to be paid to do their asylum in Rwanda rather than the UK. And the danger is, you know, 
Priti Patel is, you know, saying it's going to cost, you know, money to have them in. This is a principle that Britain, as one of the winners of World War II, was proud to sign up to, that refugees have a right to be protected on our soil. And the British are now trampling that for cheap politics. And it is really a despicable step. And as you say, Denmark is now copying this, looking at having the same sort of deal. And you see the whole Western consent for the refugee system born out of World War II is really starting to crumble. And Britain is responsible for one of the latest bricks to be knocked out of that wall. Idris, we know immigration is a hot button issue in Europe, as David says, as well as here. What about the precedent being set here that that somehow Rwanda, a country with fewer resources, thousands of miles away, is is the right place to process those seeking asylum in Europe? Yeah, I mean, look, like Dave said, I mean, it, 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 it's pretty shocking, actually. I mean, the, the reality is not too long ago, all these countries, uh, Denmark and, and Britain, were criticizing Rwanda for its human rights um, issues and sort of fear of sexual violence for a lot of refugees at the hands of Rwandan security forces. So it's a total about face and it's now being sort of ignored because it's one of those countries that has accepted it. You know, Denmark's been basically looking for countries it can ship off refugees and asylum seekers to for a while, and they just hadn't been able to find a country um, that would accept them. They now seem to have found one. Um, and, and the reality is most of the asylum seekers who are making some of the journeys are black or brown, right? It's usually not countries from within Europe. And so it's going to disproportionately affect migrants who are, you know, ethnic minorities. Um, and it's going to have an, a disproportionate effect on them. And, and I, you know, I think the concern and some of the criticism you talked about is not just that, well, this is just Denmark and, and Britain for now, you know, other countries have sort of far-right political movements that are growing, they're going to start talking about this. They might start signing up to the same situation. And, and it, you know, it'll continue and it'll snowball and it could become sort of um, a model. I mean, I, I will say the one thing is, you know, countries like Australia have tried this, like David mentioned, and seem to have failed. So I think there is some hope that there will be a realization, maybe if governments flip, if, if there's enough of an outcry, that it could be um, sort of, you know, either socially become unacceptable or the courts sort of take it up and say this is illegal and you have to, you know, sort of revoke your agreement with Rwanda. Well, and Dave, why would Rwanda say yes to this deal? Uh, For them, they're getting a lot of money. It's actually a relatively significant proportion of GDP that they would get uh, for hosting these refugees from the UK. Uh, It's also great PR. I mean, you had Boris Johnson in parliament stand up and say Rwanda is one of the safest countries in the world. Now you've got British ministers all over TV talking about Rwanda's economic miracle, you know, all of this economic growth. What a great place. It is for a government that is very sensitive to its international reputation. Um, Paul Kagame is somebody who, uh, you know, goes to a lot of international conferences, wants to pre- present himself as, you know, this development hero, as as the guy who brought Rwanda back together after the genocide. In fact, he's also uh, quite a fearsome leader, leads by fear in a lot of ways in Rwanda. Uh, but that's not the image he tries to project in the world. So this is good PR. It's a lot of money. Um, you know, and but Rwanda is a quite densely populated country uh, that already has uh, quite a few refugees. It's it's not the easiest thing to implement uh, on the Rwandan side. And I did talk to someone who said, you know, Boris Johnson likes to announce things; he doesn't necessarily love to implement things. So from from their perspective, uh, you know, they might think this might never actually happen. But we get the um, we get the buzz and maybe some money around it initially. You know, we still don't know exactly for legal reasons and for for other reasons whether we will see tens of thousands of. 
people being flown to Rwanda, as is the government's plan as it stands. Well, let's turn next to China. Three coronavirus deaths were reported in Shanghai on Monday. This marks the first official fatalities of an Omicron outbreak, which sent the city into a week's-long lockdown. David, why are these reports so significant? So China has done two big things. One is it really did control the the original coronavirus outbreak uh, in 2020 after having covered it up for some weeks, which was a, a very shocking thing to do. But then at the, at the cost of locking hundreds of millions of people indoors for weeks, including me, because I've been here for the last two years, I haven't left, um, they did break the chain of transmission. So they did the thing that other countries couldn't begin to do because this is a very disciplined place. It has extraordinary force that it can bring to bear and because the people were scared witless of this virus and so stayed indoors. That was when it was the Delta variant. But now we have the Omicron variant, which is so much more contagious and has been wreaking havoc all over the world. So as countries like the United States basically say this is so infectious and the vaccines that we have are so good, we can just learn to live with this virus. China is the last big country that is the holdout that says, no, we are going to lock this down again. We are not going to allow this to to rip through the population, not least because the oldest Chinese, uh, about half of the oldest Chinese are not vaccinated. And the Chinese have never approved a foreign vaccine and they're using a Chinese vaccine, uh, which is what I have in my arm. And I'm afraid it's not very good uh, against Omicron. So, now we have an outbreak in Shanghai, and they're still trying to lock it down and lock it down. And the, the fact that we have deaths, and we had three, as you see, on Monday, we actually had 11 announced on Thursday. By American standards, that's a tiny, tiny number. Even the total number we're seeing of about 17,000 a day at the moment in Shanghai, by American standards, that's a really very small number. But by Chinese standards, what it tells you is their uniquely strict zero covid Uh, lock everyone down and try and have no infections at all strategy is being tested to the absolute limits uh, by this Omicron variant. And Shanghai is not just any city. It's the richest city in Shanghai. It's uh, the commercial capital, 24 million people in this city filled with glittering skyscrapers, international companies, the most important port in Shanghai. That city is now in a complete standstill and has been for more than a month. And people have been hungry in this wealthy city because the food deliveries have stopped. The supermarkets can't deliver. People can't leave their apartments for most of, in most of Shanghai. So this is an extraordinary crisis. But politically, it is too big a deal for them to U-turn. And so they are going to keep locking down and locking down. We wait to see if it spreads to the rest of China. Let's move on to France, where President Emmanuel Macron faced off against his far-right challenger, Marie Le Pen, and the first and only televised debate between both candidates ahead of this Sunday's final vote. Le Pen has been criticized for her ties to Russia and Putin specifically. Dave, what are those ties? So this is something that Macron totally hammered uh, down on during the debate. Uh, Le Pen took Le Pen's party took a loan in 2014 from a Kremlin-linked bank. They have not fully repaid that loan. Uh, Macron said that makes Le Pen dependent on Russia coming into office. And at one point, uh, she hit it back and said, you hosted Putin with all this fanfare after you came in office. Uh, and he said, yes, I was hosting a head of state, but not my banker. So that is uh, clearly a vulnerability of hers that he is uh, hitting her on. The other big issue that, uh, you know, this was a debate that actually over almost three hours uh, was not as contentious uh, as you might think between two very different candidates. But there was another point that uh, things really exploded. And that was when Le Pen's 
plan to ban the hijab, the Muslim headscarf, uh, came up, and Putin's, or sorry, Macron said that that could lead to civil war inside France. You'd have police chasing women down the street trying to rip off their headscarves. Uh, he painted a pretty dystopian picture of what. Uh, Le Pen's France would look like if she was able to implement these policies. So those were kind of the two big moments. The rest of the debate, uh, Le Pen really tried to show herself as empathetic and reasonable and not the far-right extremist uh, that she has campaigned on in the past and that Macron would say she still very much is. So there's the three-hour debate, and then there's how voters are feeling about these candidates. Dave, what do we know so far? So good news for Macron coming out of the debate. Uh, actually, when the first round of this election happened and these candidates finished one and two, the polls showed Macron only up by around 6% heading into the runoff. That's too close for comfort, obviously, and she really had the momentum. Uh, that has shifted now, particularly after the debate. There was a poll from Ipsos uh, that came out yesterday that said that his lead was up to around 15%. Other polls put it between 10 and 12%. But that poll also asked people what they thought of the debate performance, uh, and a plurality of people thought that Macron was the stronger candidate in the debate. So things do seem to be tilting his direction heading into Sunday's runoff. Obviously, this race is still closer than he would like. He won uh, by a two-to-one margin when they faced off in 2017. I think we can expect it to be closer than that on Sunday, but he will probably be feeling more confident now than he was two weeks ago. Well, I want to briefly touch on one more story. The war in Ukraine is having an impact on the sports world. This week, Wimbledon made the decision to bar Russian and Belarusian players from this year's tournament in June. The All England Club said in a statement, quote, in the circumstances of such unjustified and unprecedented military aggression, it would be unacceptable for the Russian regime to derive any benefits from the involvement of Russian or Belarusian players with the championships, end quote. But the decision isn't so cut and dry for everyone. Let's listen to what retired U.S. tennis player Chandra Rubin had to say. It is a difficult situation because on one hand, you can understand Wimbledon's stance, not wanting to support the actions of these respective governments. But on the other hand, what tennis represents is individual players, you know, playing for themselves, having an equal opportunity. And that's really what we're talking about here. So it's a tough thing for these players, especially those defending points, wanting to come back after doing well last year, and they may not have the opportunity. And here's what the men's world number one had to say this week about the ban. Novak Djokovic told reporters, quote, I will always condemn war. I will never support war, being myself a child of war. I know how much emotional trauma it leaves. However, I cannot support the decision of Wimbledon. I think it's crazy. And that's Novak Djokovic. He's from Serbia. Idris, other sports have also introduced bans against Russian teams and athletes. To what extent has the war put high-profile Russians in, in a difficult position? They may be seen as somehow complicit if they don't speak out, but we also know that speaking out can have severe consequences. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing about war and conflict, right? It, it never rarely stays in sort of the military domain, right? We've already seen the economic impacts, but now we're looking at the sports and the social impact. And, you know, it's a like you said, it's an interesting situation where, you know, the world number two who's Russian and, and the world number four in the women's side who's Belarusian um, basically can't play and, and they haven't really talked about the invasion positively or negatively. And so I think the feeling is that they're being basically um, punished for something they have not taken a position on. And like you said, if they were to take a position on it, they likely would 
face repercussions back at home. And, you know, it's interesting because the ATP, which sort of um, governs men's tennis, had already said that you, the players, cannot play under the Russian or Belarusian flag. And so there were already sort of these these impacts already in place, but they were sort of made so that the individual players wouldn't be affected. But now we're seeing with Wimbledon um, taking a really sort of aggressive stance. And, and, you know, it's not just Wimbledon. We're seeing it across the sporting world. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the years to come. Well, we'll leave things there. That's Idris Ali. Idris covers foreign policy and the Pentagon for Reuters. Also with us today, David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, and Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. Dave, David, Idris, thanks for speaking with us. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Jacqueline Hill is our senior producer. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. He gets technical assistance from Rashad Young. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again on Monday. This is 1A.